you before. My name is Grant. Let's get busy. If you have your Bible with you or a Bible app, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Okay, we're just going to dip our toe in the book of Revelation and then starting halfway through June and all of July and all of August, we're going to walk through the most controversial book in all of the Bible. I'll be doing a complete series, so don't come back next week. Next week's Easter, so we'll be talking about Revelation on Easter, but we will be coming back for the balance of the summer. Today we begin a new series called The Last. And it's unbelievably important to us as we focus on that word all the way through the Easter story. This Friday night on Good Our Friday service at 7 o'clock, we're going to be looking at the, the fact that Jesus called us together at the Last Supper. And we're going to stop for a moment and we're, going to, we're going to just going to take a breath and we're going to reflect on the fact that Jesus breathed his last. On that particular day, the devil and his angels thought that that was the last word. That Jesus was dead and this whole thing was done. But we understand because of Easter, that was not the last word. In fact, the most important last words in the Easter story is he is risen, okay? And so we're going to walk through that, but we're going to kick off the series this week out of Revelation chapter 1 because that's where Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. That's where it comes from, okay? The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, okay? And it doesn't have anything to do with mushroom clouds, global thermonuclear war, or interplanetary devastation. In fact, the word apocalypsis is actually describing a moment. For me, it happened in June 10th, 1989, when my bride, Laurel Fishbook, at that time Laurel Lynette Harder, walked around the corner of an aisle in a little church in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, wearing a white dress on the arm of her dad, Leonard Lawrence Harder, and they came around the corner, and when I saw her and she was unveiled to me, we both experienced apocalypsis. A little different than what we think when we hear the word apocalypse, Right? The book of Revelation is the unveiling of God's plan for his family and how the bridegroom, being Jesus, relates to his bride, which is the church. Revelation chapter 1 starts this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So let's get it right from the beginning, okay? Let's get it right from the beginning. The book of Revelation was never written to scare you. And if it produces fear inside of you, you have the wrong reaction. Okay? It was written to unveil Jesus to you. It was written to show you. People get all freaked out reading this book because they don't know the purpose. And they get all caught up in the imagery of the book. And pretty soon, they're reading Revelation. They believe that their neighbor is actually the Antichrist. They can't go to Safeway anymore because of the UPC codes, which is actually some way of the Antichrist controlling the economic situation. Within, and they're digging a bunker in their backyard, and everybody's wearing denim. It's just weird. It's just weird, right? If that's your reaction to this book, I have three words for you. You need help, all right? And I don't want anyone to have to do therapy by the time we're done. In fact, I'm hoping that this can be a great encouragement. Your reaction to this book should be a greater love for Jesus and a greater hope because the last time I checked, Jesus is still on the throne and he's in complete control. Can I get an amen from the 930 service, okay? The Bible continues. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Okay, John was the best friend of Jesus, known in Scripture as the apostle that Jesus loved. And he wrote this book while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. They tried to kill John originally. Church history tells us they tried to boil him in oil. Not a good outcome, right? But he didn't die. Apparently he's a tough little guy. 
They couldn't kill him by boiling him in oil, so they exiled him to this little island called Patmos. Okay, think Alcatraz, but really, really, really hot. Okay, so that's where the Bible shows up with Revelation. The Bible continues, verse 2, who testifies, meaning John, to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this next verse because it's personal. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. I'm hoping to get blessed all summer long, okay? And blessed are those who hear it. So there's your blessing. And take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So the Bible is clear, okay? The book of Revelation was written to bless its readers and to restore hope in God's plan. And the people who were reading this originally, they needed hope. So the Bible continues, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you, people of Whatcom County. God has everything under control. Now, at this time in history, people were freaking out. They were freaking out because the church was facing untold evil in the form of two guys, okay? Nero and Domitian. Two unbelievably evil, evil emperors. I believe I got a picture of the two of them. There they are. Yay, awesome. Okay. Nero, the man on the left there, was an unbelievably evil man. History tells us that he would light his garden at night with the bodies of our predecessors, Christians, followers of Jesus. He would impale them on stakes, dip them in oil, and light them on fire. I don't like the picture in my brain any more than you do. If you ever use the phrase on the 4th of July, oh, it's a Roman candle. Do you understand where that comes from? It's the nickname that they used when Nero massacred and executed thousands of people who are doing exactly what we're doing here today. He was followed by a guy named Domitian who tried to dominate the followers of Jesus through mass execution. He declared himself to be Lord and God, and if you didn't call him that, he killed you. That's just the way that it worked out. History tells us that very often he would preside over mass executions of Christians and he'd walk around with a little key and he would say to them, I hold the key to your life. I hold the key to your life. Followers of Jesus at this time were scared, intimidated, tired, nervous, defeated, discouraged, and uncertain about their future. Anybody else felt that way just opening the paper the last couple of weeks, right? I hear this a lot from people these days. I'm scared, intimidated, tired, nervous, defeated, discouraged, uncertain. A couple of years ago, I never heard this little word attached to those types of feelings, but I hear it a lot more these days. And the word is ISIS. Freaks people out. Freaks people out. Let's just get really, really practical for a few minutes. Several months ago, six weeks or so. I open up my newspaper and I see a picture of 21 men kneeling on a beach wearing orange jumpsuits. And standing behind them are 21 men dressed in black, all holding a knife. 21 of my brothers, Coptic Christians from the nation of Egypt, who love the same Jesus I love. All about to be murdered. Can I ask you a question, church? What did you do about that? Some of you just quickly clicked out because the imagery is just too difficult. I understand that. It turns my stomach too. Some of you just sat there and just raged inside of your soul at the injustice of it. Some of you kind of looked at it and just like, ah. Did you do what your Bible tells you to do? 
I put my finger on each one of those men in an orange jumpsuit in that picture. And I prayed for them and for their strength to not renounce the name of Jesus. And I prayed for their families all the way down the line. Don't know their names, doesn't matter. They're my family. And then I did something unbelievably difficult because my Bible says pray for your enemies. Bless them, don't curse them. So I put my finger on every man dressed in black and I prayed over them. I didn't pray an easy, safe prayer. I prayed a Revelation chapter 1 kind of prayer. I prayed that the God of the universe in the form of Jesus Christ would show up at the bedside of every single one of those men. That he would step into their dreams, that he would step into their visions, that he would step into their lives and interrupt them completely. I prayed that in that moment, Jesus would show up, the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1, and ask them a question. Why are you persecuting me? I prayed that he'd have the same kind of moment with them that he had with the Apostle Paul. Because we take the Apostle Paul and we elevate him. The truth is this. He was doing exactly the same thing, murdering Christians for sport. I prayed that they would have an axe moment right there in front of that, that Jesus would show up and say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that in that moment, they would exchange their knife for the sword of the Spirit, their bloodline for the glory of God, that they would have a moment when they were completely changed and instead of working in the pathway of becoming more and more of a murderer, that they instead would become another missionary in the name of Jesus because he interrupted their life. Now my Bible tells me to do that and it's not comfortable and people get so freaked out because of all of this stuff and they weave it together with end times theology And to all of that, I would say this from Scripture. The Lord is my helper. I need not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? So I say to you the same thing John said to these believers who were scared to death. Grace and peace to you. John's teaching a biblical principle of revelation. Relax. If he is the first and the last, everything in between is under control. The Bible continues, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen. Verse 7, look, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Do you notice the order there? So we just sang it in a song, and actually the song gets it wrong. Don't freak out. It's still a good song. Okay. We just sang it, though, right? Who was and is and is to come. But notice the order in Scripture because it's important. It actually says who is and who was. And is to come. The order is present, past, and future. Normally you would say it past, present, and future. What is Jesus trying to say there? He's saying, I am in your present. Right here, right now. My presence as God is in your present. And nothing that you're dealing with is catching me by surprise. I have you completely and totally covered. I have your past taken care of because of what happened on the cross. You're present because scripture also says that he promised he would be with us always to the end of the age. And then our future is most certainly assured because of his presence as well. Then John gets personal. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, 
was on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love how John identifies himself. The Bible says that he was the apostle that Jesus loved. So you know what he could have written there? I'm John. <laughs> I'm the one that had the special friendship with Jesus. We were close. This was the circle of trust. We were both inside. You're outside. You don't get to step into the inner circle. I'm in and you're out. John could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, he says this. I'm your brother and your companion in suffering. And I'm patiently enduring and waiting just like you are. Anybody else wish Jesus would come back today? Right? Just today would be an awesome day. I vote for 10-10 on this morning. Just like, we're out of here. That would be amazing. You know, he could have chosen to present himself in a certain way. But instead, he just says, I'm with you. Your outline reads this way. John's a partner in suffering. He's not an arrogant elitist. He doesn't try to put himself above. He just basically says, look, I'm the guy who wrote the book. I'm your brother, and I feel your pain. I get a little nervous sometimes. I understand exactly how you're feeling. In this day and age, people need to know that their pain is your pain. People need to know that you actually care about what's happening inside of their world. If you ever get a little note from me, I always sign it the same way. In this together. Because that's what we are. We are in this together. None of us are immune from pain. None of us are any better. None of us get a free pass. You've got your stuff. I've got mine. And together we get to cling to the same truth. That God is ultimately in control. Let's keep going. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. That's what John says. Okay. There are two components to biblical worship. In God's presence and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it takes to truly enter in to complete biblical worship. You don't need a band. You don't need lights. You don't need comfortable seats with coffee holders. None of those things are a part of true biblical worship. All you need to truly worship is the presence of God in the room and in your soul. Those two things create worship. That recipe for a life-changing worship moment is available to each one of us right now. The Bible goes on. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. We're going to get to know these people very well. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That was Jesus' favorite name for himself. Son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Okay, stick with me. This is where we run into the imagery of Revelation, and I don't have time to unpack all of it. We will over the summertime, all right? But I'm going to mention just pieces of it because it's amazing. So John turns around and he has this vision. He sees a picture in his mind of a man walking amongst seven lampstands and then it goes on to describe him, okay? The man in the vision is Jesus, okay? And the Bible unrolls. It says he has a robe on and he's wearing a sash 
around the center of him. This reveals Jesus' high priest. If you want to read more on that, open your Bible and read Hebrews chapter 4 through 8. This is Jesus as the true and final high priest who goes into the presence of God and obtains forgiveness for the sins of people once and for all. We don't need another priest. We don't need a better priest. We have the ultimate priest, and that office has been filled with one man, the one who died on a cross and rose from the dead that we celebrate on Easter, and his name is Jesus. The Bible describes him as having white hair. This reveals Jesus' wisdom, that he has all wisdom available for all people. If you need a cross-reference there, take a look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. We'll be studying that during the summer. The Bible says he has blazing eyes, which means and describes Jesus as all-seeing. He sees everything. That should freak some of us out. He sees everything. The best of you, the worst of you where you compromise, and where you stand firm. He's all-seeing. Then scripture describes him as having bronze glowing feet. This reveals Jesus as the supreme judge. If you need another picture of that, Matthew chapter 25. If you know your Old Testament, even just a little bit, the temple furniture is where this kind of shows up. The bronze altar is where the sacrifice was consumed in an act of judgment. And this verse just says, Jesus stands as the supreme judge over all. And yes, we will all give and account him. Then it describes his voice. This reveals to us Jesus is the powerful and authoritative voice of God. Like the pounding roar of the surf or a deafening waterfall. Anybody else ever been to Niagara Falls? I mean, it is an amazing deal. The sound of that water coming over top of those falls, it will literally move your body if you're standing close enough to it. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend it's not there. You can stick your fingers in your ears and it doesn't matter. You will be completely overwhelmed by the sound of that rushing water. And that's the voice of God compelling to us and making himself impossible to ignore. And then it describes his mouth as a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and it reveals Jesus is the living word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's just a little snapshot of the Jesus that we serve. Not a helpless little baby in a manger, even though that's a beautiful picture. Not a helpless human being whipped and martyred and beaten on a cross, even though that is a picture that's unbelievably precious to those of us who've had their sins forgiven by that martyr. No, this is a picture of a, rec- a resurrected and all-consuming God to whom we will give an account. And look at John's reaction, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When was the last time you fell on the floor in church? I wouldn't want to do that, Grant. Um, people might think that that would be strange. When was the last time you were so overcome by the presence of God that there was a physical reaction in your body because you understood in that moment just who he was and just who you are? 
true encounter with Jesus will put you on your face at some point. This is Palm Sunday. It's the day when we remember back to that moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was hailed as a king. And people came out and laid palm branches in front of him in that amazing processional, most incredible parade ever. And they shouted at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, God save us. Why were they yelling that? Because they were afraid and intimidated and scared of an empire called Rome. And we hear that and we go, oh, that's so good. That's worship. We should sing Hosanna songs more often until we're reminded just a few days later the same people that screamed Hosanna exchanged it for a different catchphrase. Crucify him. Crucify him. Revelation tells us that Jesus seeks true worship. Not the empty worship of a Palm Sunday 2,000 plus years ago. Let's be honest, we all do it, don't we? We all give Jesus empty words in worship. We make promises we don't keep. We break covenant by filling our lives with empty idols and surrogate saviors. We put them behind sports and Super Bowls, money and sin management. We care more about our future than the future in which he is coming back to. We stockpile instead of steward. We promise instead of purpose. And the amazing thing to me is he tolerates us. Look at his response to John. So John's on his face. And the Bible says this is Jesus' reaction. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Say it with me. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. To a believer right then, they would have been going, whoa, 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 no, 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 Domitian said he, no, 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 no. Domitian can say that you need to call him Lord and God all you want to. The reality is this, Domitian doesn't hold jack. Domitian is nothing in front of me. He's a pawn. I hold the keys, all of the keys, the key to your past, the key to your future, the key to your forgiveness, the key to your life, the key to your tomorrow. I hold the key of your next breath. And this is my word to you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. He is in control of all things. Jesus is saying, I was there at the beginning. I'm going to be there at the end, which means everything in between is completely and totally covered. Jesus is saying, I took on death and I actually won. Domitian thinks he has power. He has nothing compared to me. I am life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me and my name is Jesus. I love that passage. Now we read that and we got to ask the question, right? So what? So what? Let me just give you some practical thoughts, okay? If Jesus is the first, I don't have to strive to be number one. I don't have to strive to be number one. I know this is news for some of you, but the role as king of the universe is taken. I know, just like, well, I thought, no, 
The throne of your life can be occupied, and there's unbelievable freedom in that. I don't need to scramble up uh, you know, the corporate ladder. I don't need to pad my resume. I can just spend my life pursuing the one who actually is number one, and that allows me to experience something. What John prayed for all of us, grace and peace to you. I don't need to be on that throne anymore. Secondly, if Jesus is last, I cannot be left behind. And that is not a tongue-in-cheek joke about the Revelation series, okay? If you read the books, okay, all right? If Jesus is first and last, I'm not going to fall through the cracks, and I'm not going to be left behind because there's one coming behind me, and he, it means I'll never be alone. We just celebrated St. Patrick's Day which I just have the hardest thing. People think, I'm going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to paint my head green and get drunk. What? Do you know how much St. Patrick loved Jesus? His famous prayer, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ below me. In all things, Christ within me. First and last, completely covered. Thirdly, if Jesus is the living one, I don't need to fear death. Now, people think this is so strange. As Christians, we don't fear death because it's just simply a door into eternity. That doesn't freak me out. Death is an upgrade. I'm praying over my 21 brothers. And my heart is broken and I'm weeping because of what they are going through for the sake of the name of Jesus. But this one thing I know they're okay. They're better than anybody else here. They got to live it. For me, to live is Christ and die is gain. And finally, if Jesus holds the de- keys to death in Hades, I can live with the promise of heaven. That's the only thing that keeps me going these days. Promise of heaven. Where every eye can see Every ear can hear. Every broken limb can walk. No more tears. No more cancer. No more disappointments. No more broken family systems. No more fear. No more intimidation. Just Jesus. So over the coming days, we will celebrate him. I want to invite you to come back on Friday. Some of you need to put a reminder because you're not in the, the practice of coming to church on Friday night. I had a guy, talk, I was talking to a guy, we were just having coffee this week, and he said, yeah, those Friday services are really, really tough for me because like, I have my own schedule on Friday. Like, Do you know what Jesus' schedule was on that Friday? And you want to celebrate that by going to a movie. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to say, you don't get to experience resurrection if you don't experience crucifixion first. Okay, we're not going to crucify anybody, just so we're clear, all right? (laughs) Not going to happen. But as the followers of God, how can we just step over top of that very pain? We're going to come together and celebrate the Last Supper. We're going to grieve as we look at the fact that Jesus breathed his last. But we're not going to grieve as those who have no hope because we know sin, death, and the devil didn't have the last word on Easter. 
the last words, the only one that really matter. Say it with me. He is risen. We've been challenging you to bring people with you. Out in the commons again, little pieces of paper that are actually an opportunity to be somebody else's miracle. I just want to encourage you. You invited people to come on Christmas. You kind of freaked me out because a lot of you invited people, and guess what? They showed up. We want them to hear the other half of the story. Not a helpless baby in a manger. Not a martyr hanging on a cross. We want them to have a face-to-face encounter with the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. And you hold a key. A key in a conversation. Who knows what God might do? I mean, you're going to walk out into the commons, there's going to be lots of distractions. They're actually great opportunities. It's Connect Weekend. We just want to get you connected into a small group, connected into a class, connected into a community where you can be a vital part of this family. But right in the center, underneath of the Easter sign, is one of those living edge wood tables and little pieces of paper that my God is powerful enough to use to change someone's eternity. How about yours? You know, I remember as a little kid growing up in Madison Crescent Baptist Church in Brandon, Manitoba, and on Sunday evenings, because we had church Sunday morning and Sunday night, normal people came Sunday morning. If you're really godly, you showed up on Sunday night. That's how it worked, right? And sometimes they would show these gospel films, and I remember being a kid, like eight, nine, ten years old, something like that, and they brought in a film about the book of Revelation. I believe it was called A Thief in the Night, or maybe Distant Thunder, or something like this. All I know is it's scared the bejeebers out of me. I was freaked out. Because it's, you know, a girl wakes up, the phone rings, and she wakes up, and she walks outside, and there's a lawnmower running on somebody's lawn, and there's nobody there, and there's a melting ice cream cone on the sidewalk, and there's nobody there. She's running around, and people are showing up with, like, tattoos of you. UPC codes on their forehead and they're worshiping this guy named Brother Christopher and it finishes with a scene with a guillotine. I'm like, that's encouraging when you're 8, 9, or 10 years old. And then my parents decided that would be a great night to go out and have some fellowship with some of their friends. So they left me at home alone. I'm freaking out. Like, are you kidding me? I walk in the house, right? You know, just like, this is, you know, they ain't going to come home. I don't know if they're going to come home. And the number six seems to be everywhere in my house, right? And there's sixes everywhere. There's sixes on everything. And there's a UPC code, you know, on the counter screaming at me, just like, get this on your head. And I'm, I mean, I'm, yeah! I'll never forgive my parents for that. That's why I'm in therapy, right? Don't leave your kids alone after reading, showing movies like that. Going back through this story in my head, and I remembered a detail. I've, I've busted my mom on this one so many times. And the other day, I'm just thinking back. I'm just putting the pieces back together again. And I remember being at home, and the phone rang. <laughs> Which, with the movie, I'm like, Picked it up. Shirley Mae Fishbuck on the other end. You Okay. A little freaked out, thought I better check on you. And I remember these words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
I'm going to blow the ending of the book for you. Jesus wins. Jesus wins, and we win, and everything is put perfectly in place. Wouldn't it be nice if the people that you loved would come along with you for this most amazing ride? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for the hope that comes along with it. Lord, may our hearts be completely changed and revolutionized because of it. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so compelled by the picture of you in Revelation 1 that we couldn't help ourselves but walk past the table and grab some invitations and then bring people with us next weekend to hear the amazing story the amazing story that leads up to this moment in Revelation when you say, I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus, would you come and inspire us, encourage us, and push us to believe that our God has everything fully and completely under control. May we walk out of here with the beautiful gift. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And we give you praise as the God of first and last. And all God's people said, amen.